Hey everybody, welcome to ARE Live. I'm Mark Tier, the founder of Black Spectacles, and today I'm with Mike Newman, who is going to review the Building Design and Construction Systems exam. Um, tonight, Mike is going to help you understand sort of the, the big concepts that the questions are really going to be asking. Um, because while there, you know, there's lots of different sort of places the exam could go, the main topics cover things like keeping water out of a building, keeping things from falling down, durability and maintenance, and thermal considerations. And also, if you're looking for exams that sort of overlap a little bit, the building systems and the construction documents and service ex exams cover similar topics like uh, construction and detailing, as well as organizing a set of drawings. So that's sort of what's on tap uh, in today's episode. Uh, but before we get started, if you'd like to attend our next ARE Live broadcast, which is on the schematic design exam, visit blackspectacles.com slash podcast to register. You can see it uh, here right now. So if you just click the little registration button here on the podcast page, um, you can register. Um, during the broadcast, you'll have a chance, just like today, to uh, ask questions and share your answers with Mike. And of course, if you don't know Mike, he's an adjunct professor at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. He's also the founder of Shed Studio, and he's the instructor for Black Spectacles online AIA ARE prep curriculum. Uh, and if you haven't already checked out our AIA ARE prep curriculum, head over to blackspectacles.com to watch any of the free tutorials from the courses. Um, and today we have a special Black Spectacles promo code to share, uh, so make sure you stick around until the end of today's episode. But first, let's hand it over to Mike. Okay. Thanks, Mark. Uh, today, as Mark said, we have the Building Design and Construction Systems uh, topic. Uh, this exam can go anywhere from really large-scale decision-making to quite fine-grained uh, detailing. Uh, the, the essence of this, though, is, as Mark said, you're using these, that fine-grained detailing, those, those other kinds of questions, as a way to think about the big issues of how does a building stay dry, how does, a, how does it stay warm or cool, how does it stay comfortable, uh, how does it not fall down, all of those kinds of uh, basic issues. And so uh, we're going to, on this particular version of the review, we're going to use a lot of that fine-grained discussion uh, because we're only going to run through a few, a few topics. Uh, so we're going to focus on, the, on this one, on these fine-grained detailing materiality issues. But remember that as we talk about them, what we're really talking about are these bigger scale issues. So we're going to talk about soils, concrete, masonry, wood, uh, a bunch of that kind of stuff uh, in order to kind of really think about uh, these kind of big scale uh, decision making uh, for, for buildings. And so we're going to be at small scale and big scale all at the same time. So remember, as we talk about these things, there are also a whole lot of other potential topics that the exam can go to. And we'll pick up uh, another uh, one of these uh, events uh, down the road where we pick up some of those other issues. Uh, but hey, we got to start somewhere. So we're starting here. Let's start with uh, question number one. Uh, so I'm just going to dive right in. Hope everybody's ready. Uh, question number one, which of the following is not true regarding bentonite waterproofing? Okay, A, it is made with volcanic clays. B, it swells to a watertight barrier. C, it can be installed on top of a mud slab in a crawl space. D, it can be installed in hydrostatic condition. So first thing we need to think about with, uh, with something, a question like this is, uh, first of all, kind of uh, what the heck is actually going on? Um, so uh, what we're really talking about when we say bentonite waterproofing, bentonite is a type of clay. So it's actually, when it's dry, it's a very dusty, very, uh, um, uh, it's like a bag of, of uh, very dry, dusty clay. 
And what's really amazing about bentonite is that when it gets wet, it actually gets larger. So, okay, why is that uh, interesting to us? Well, if we have, a, a, let's say, a concrete wall, and that concrete wall has a seam in it or a crack in it or something, and we can fill that uh, seam or crack with the bentonite, uh, and then other than you know other layers of, of uh, stuff is added on like let's say we have you know boards of insulation over the top or something there's something that kind of makes it all a contained situation if we have that bentonite in that crack if water does get to that crack which of course water will right because water will always find its way um, into whatever crack there is because that's the nature of water uh, it, when the water gets in there, it'll make that bentonite wet, it then expands, and when it expands, it presses against the sides of the crack that it's in, and it becomes waterproof. It becomes a way of stopping the water from getting through. It's kind of this amazing, low-tech, simple system. Um, but it has a number of drawbacks, and the biggest drawback it has is that uh, if it's in a situation, like say, for example, C, which would be the answer, uh, where I have a mud slab, so this is, I have a simple slab. For those of you who don't know the term mud slab, it's used in things like crawl spaces or places where you don't really need a full concrete slab, but you take some Portland cement, you mix it in with some water and some of the local uh, soil that's right there, and you make a kind of a very rough-hewn version of, uh, of a concrete slab. So it's not particularly strong, not particularly uh, useful, but it's very, very cheap and easy and gives you kind of a hard, simple surface that you can kind of, you know, uh, use for construction purposes and things like that. You wouldn't really want to live on a mud slab, but you know, it kind of makes it sort of workable. But if I had that uh, mud slab in that basement uh, and I then put the bentonite on top of it as a way to hope that I was going to get uh, 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 waterproofing out of it, well, if I had water flowing onto this space, as the water would flow in, it would just take the, the bentonite with it because it, the bentonite needs to be in a contained space for it to work. So they're very different animals in these kinds of different situations. A contained space where water is moving through um, uh, uh, capillary action and uh, surface tension and those kinds of things, that containedness is actually what's gonna make bentonite work. In an uncontained situation, I would need something that's more like a membrane. So in this situation, I might use something similar to uh, a fluid applied uh, waterproofing, or I might use a, an actual uh, like visqueen membrane, or uh, I might use uh, kind of similar to roofing materials. There's a whole bunch of ways I might try to get something to be waterproof uh, in something like a mud slab or a slab, uh, but bentonite would not be the answer. So bentonite, amazing, interesting material in terms of how it can keep water out because it's low tech and cheap. Um, not terribly cheap, but uh, cheap enough, uh, and uh, has uh, you know, zero toxic aspects to it, um, but only works in certain scenarios. So again, thinking about this, this is a detailed kind of question, but what we're really trying to make sure that you understand or what the questions would, the exam would be trying to ask you really here is, do you kind of get that water works in different ways and that there are going to be different ways of attacking it? Right? that not every waterproofing system is equal uh, in terms of how it, how it works and how it would be used, and so you have to find the right one for the right fit. Uh, so, hope that made sense. Let's move on to number two. Yeah, and before we do, it oh, um, yes. looks like uh, Devon, Dustin, Judd, Kevin, Michael got this right. Um, a couple of folks thought that maybe it was 
a B or D uh, swelling to a watertight barrier or yeah, and, the other one? And, and that's because like people would assume B because it sounds so crazy um, that, that it actually works. Like not all clay will work. Bentonite is, is really the only uh, type of clay like, or I, actually it's the only one I know of, maybe there's others, but um, you know, typical clay wouldn't do this. But it's this kind of amazing thing. It swells quite a lot when it gets wet. It's a, it, it really is expansive and it does it so fast that it actually, when it gets wet, it swells and fills the crack uh, and therefore makes it watertight. And then as it dries out, uh, it goes back to being a sort of drier, dustier material but uh, that's okay because there's no water and you know there's no water because it dried out and then when it gets wet again it swells again right which is why you can't have it be in a situation where it can get washed away all right let's move on to number two so okay uh, hopefully you noticed if you were uh, doing this uh, little mini exam at home uh, hopefully you noticed that i was actually kind of being a little tricky here um, so the question is number two what is the nominal dimension of a cmu block uh, so, uh, first thing we have to think about is, all right, CMU block, that's a concrete masonry unit. That's like a really standard concrete, uh, concrete block. Uh, so let's see if I can do a quick version of it here. It was a terrible version. All right. Very exciting. Uh, right. So there's our concrete block. Uh, and, uh, one of those blocks, there, there are probably... Uh, I don't know, 30 or 40 different versions of standard block sizes. But having said that, probably 80% of the block that gets used is this one very simple type of block. Uh, it's used all the time and uh, a vast majority of, of the situations. And in this situation, this is actually 16 inches by 8 inches by 8 inches. So it's a uh, eight, uh, 16 by 8 by 8 uh, would be the answer, or 8 by 8 by 16. Um, and the tricky thing that I did here is I actually asked you for nominal dimensions, and generally in a question like this, people would be really asking uh, for the actual dimensions, um, because there's a difference between nominal and actual. The nominal it means the named dimension. This is what we call it. We call it a 16 by 8. Uh, and so that's a useful, important number, and it actually is that when you include the mortar beds. The actual numbers here would be, uh, usually it's about a three-eighths of an inch uh, mortar bed, so it would be 15 and five-eighths, and seven and five-eighths, and seven and five-eighths. And those would be inches. So if I had actually asked, instead of nominal, if I had asked actual, you would answer it 7 and 5 eighths by 7 and 5 eighths by 15 and 5 eighths. Uh, so this system uh, is a, a way of, sort of a very simple way of having a two-handed process where I butter it with the mortar, I have the two hands, I lift it up, I place it into place. Three of these in a row, 16, 16, and 16, is going to get me 48 inches. 48 inches obviously is tied into all the other uh, modular dimensions that happen on job sites. So 16 inch uh, stud spacing, 24 inch stud spacing, four by eight sheets of plywood, uh, all of those things, they're all on the same basic module. Uh, this is in the United States and other places everything gets different, um, although you'll find similar, uh, similar issues, similar ways of being modular. So uh, this system allows you to, without really even thinking about it, tie 
Uh, like if you know that it's you know four sh sheets of plywood wide, you can then figure out very quickly how many uh, blocks those are, how many CMU blocks those are. Uh, the advantage of the CMU block uh, is there's all sorts of advantages. It's a very strong material. It has all the holes in it. Why does it have holes? Well, it has holes so you don't have to carry a giant chunk of concrete. Uh, so it's making it lighter uh, in terms of placing it. It also allows you to put rebar going through uh, so that things can be tied together. Each of the different courses can be tied together. Uh, all of those things kind of, they're all modular enough that across a whole wide range of uses, these things can be used in any one of those ways. So it can be without rebar, it can be with rebar, it can be filled grout into the center, it can be not filled grout, uh, just a, a dry sets. Um, there's a whole series of different ways it can be used, but by the simplicity of it, the, the sort of nature of everybody understanding exactly what they're getting, it's very simple setup. How big the holes are, therefore how light the block is, there's a lot of range of that, but the basic idea will hold true on a whole lot of these. Then you can also get into specialty ones that are four inches or six inches or uh, uh, four inches tall. Um, there's a, a big range of other possibilities, but like I said, the vast majority of them fall right into this category. All right, I'm gonna jump to number three, which is related, well, similar. So number three, what is the nominal dimension of an eight foot two by six. Again, this was the same sort of tricky thing. Almost everybody would be assuming I would be asking what is the actual dimension. And I did this in order to make the point uh, that you have to actually be really careful about how you're reading it. Don't make assumptions. Actually read all the words and really uh, like parse them as you move through it quickly, but you have to parse them as you move through it. So the key thing here is the nominal, uh, what is the nominal dimension of an eight foot two by six? And so the actual answer to that would be uh, Eight foot and two and six. That's the nom That's the named thing. That's what that is. That's an eight foot two by six. Um, if I had asked for the actual dimensions, then what we'd be talking about is a smaller size than the uh, two and six. Uh, so if this was, a, say, a two by four, uh, that actual dimension would be one and a half by three and a half. Probably many of you know this, but we'll just run through it really quickly. Uh, if that was a two by six, like we were talking about here, that would be one and a half by five and a half. Uh, if that's a two by eight, uh, this is the tricky part. It goes to one and a half by seven and a quarter. And then all the other ones after that, the tens and the twelves would all go to uh, nine and a quarter and 11 and a quarter. Um, so if we're similar thing, this is all with dimensional lumber. So this is a uh, similar thing as uh, uh, four by fours, four by sixes, uh, two by fours, two by twelves, all of that kind of stuff. That's dimensional lumber uh, and it's dressed lumber. So in our situation, if this question had actually asked, what is the actual dimension of an eight foot two by six? It would be one and a half by five and a half. And then here's the kind of odd part eight foot, right? Because it's smaller in all of the dimensions, but not in the length dimension, because that doesn't make any sense, right? You're the one who's cutting it at eight feet. Uh, the other dimensions are smaller because that's a dressed dimension of the wood. There's kind of an interesting history to all this stuff. Uh, if you've worked on older buildings, uh, you may well find that you've actually worked in spaces where you had actual two by fours, where it was the actual dimensions of a two by four, like two inches by four inches. Uh, and then over the years, they got sort of smaller and smaller. 
And the way that most people talk about it is that uh, they would cut it actually as a two by four, and then by partly it shrinks in the, in the kiln process or the drying process, and partly it shrinks when they uh, plane down the edges. It's called dressing the edges. Uh, and so each of the edges gets, gets planed down a bit. Uh, and so it starts at two inches and goes down to one and a half, and it starts at six inches and it goes down to five and a half. In actuality, that's not even really true anymore. It actually starts at about one and three quarter or something like that, or, and then five and three quarter, and then gets planed down from there. Um, and the realization happened many, many years ago that you really didn't need the full two inches. When you're doing something like platform construction uh, or uh, just any kind of framing with, uh, with two-by material, it became obvious that because you have so many pieces of framing every 16 inches typically, uh, that uh, having a full two inches of wood just wasn't really necessary. That wasn't, you're, you're not using the wood as a big, solid, robust material. You're using it more like a whole series of toothpicks that all get lined up, and because there's a whole lot of them, it doesn't really, uh, they kind of do the job. They, 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 they carry the load. Um, and so it's been engineered down over time to be these very thin uh, one and a half inch uh, wide members, and that that's really plenty big enough. So it's kind of an interesting uh, way to get at it, this idea of the nominal and the actual. You should be really careful. This is such a simple thing to know. Please don't make a mistake on this because it's such an easy way to miss a question and there's really no reason to. Um, but you can see how it ties into all of these other issues. Um, that uh, there's sort of historical aspects to it. There are um, ideas of uh, the specific spacing uh, starts becoming an interesting question. Uh, like you start saying that something is uh, on 16 inches on center. Uh, that doesn't mean that there's 14 inches of space in between. That means there's 14 and a half inches of space uh, in between. So uh, kind of understanding those numbers, you start seeing whole walls very, very quickly and it adds up to a whole sort of assembly system. We do have one question here yeah. from, uh, from Ben. Yep. And he's asking, does NCARB expect the answer to follow a convention about the order? In other words, no. length times width times. Yeah, that's a, really, that's a really good question. Um, I don't think they would. Typically, it would actually be, I, I did it kind of backwards on that first one where I put eight foot and then a two by six. Really should be two by six by eight. Um, but you'll actually see it done differently. It depends on who you're talking to. Like if you go to Home Depot, they'll do it one way. If you go to some other places, they'll do it another way. It doesn't really matter that much. I don't think it would matter. Like they won't, they won't give you the same numbers, but in reverse order or anything like that uh, on, on this kind of thing. And actually, I don't think they would technically ask you this exact question. It's more, this is a question that kind of gets at all of these different kinds of issues. And one other quick thing to say about this, just in general, you may, I don't know if you, if you notice, but um, when I'm doing this, I actually should have inch marks on the, when I say one and a half inch by five and a half inch, and then the foot mark at the eight. But I do not have it when I'm talking about the two by six, right? There's no inch marks on the two and the six. And that's because it's not two inches by six inches. It's just that two by six is the name. It's like, uh, it's like a, you know, you're, you're giving it a name. And if I put the inch marks, then what that's saying is it is actually two inches by six inches. All right. That was a good question. Uh, let's move on to the next one. All right, number four. You are estimating how many bricks you will need to order for a 48-inch wide double-width wall that is 32 inches tall. Uh, I have wall in there probably too many times. Uh, for part of a patio design. The bricks are sort of standard bricks and normal bricks. Um, how many bricks would you need in order to do this? So, okay. Uh, 
a couple things to talk about here. One is uh, sort of stacking bricks. If we look at a quick section of, of a portion of the bricks, uh, if I have, uh, let's say, you know, three bricks stacked on top of each other, and then I have another three bricks stacked on top of each other uh, next to them, uh, each one of these lines is considered a course course of brick. Each one of these lines is considered a wythe of brick. Um, I've talked to people a bunch of times. Some people say width, some people say wythe. I prefer to say wythe just because it differentiates, differentiates it from the word width. Um, but uh, I actually, I think width is actually the technically correct term. So people will say it different ways. It doesn't really matter. But uh, that's uh, the vertical line um, is, a, is a wythe. The uh, horizontal is a, is a course. Um, and every three bricks in a kind of standard, normal uh, run of bricks is eight inches. Uh, so when you stack them together with their mortar beds, that's an eight inch uh, uh, height. So we start thinking about this wall that we talked about. Uh, so, okay, here's our wall. And it's two wythes. And this is 32 tall, and this is 48 long. Uh, so what do we know about brick? Well, one of the things we know about brick, a, a typical brick, uh, is that that typical brick is eight inches by four inches. And the height is sort of the odd, right? Because the height is like one third of the eight inches. So most people don't really worry about the height. They, they think of it in the groupings of three because it's just easier to do the calculations. Um, now remember, just like the CMU, that means that the eight is actually seven and a half, seven and five eighths, a couple of them, like there's a few, quite a range in there. Uh, bricks are more uh, malleable than, than CMU, uh, so it'll be a little bit more of a range, but it'll be a similar thing. But in terms of nominal dimensions, it'll be uh, eight by four, four by eight. Uh, so that eight inches in that brick, I start looking at that 48 inch length of the wall, uh, I can have every one of the bricks is eight. That means I have six bricks uh, in, that, uh, in that row um, for every, in that course, every, every uh, part of, uh, section of that wall, that, every course of that wall. And then now the question is, well, how many courses do I have? Well, if I have 32 inches tall and every eight inches is uh, three courses, so I can start dividing that into four groupings uh, one, two, three, four groupings of eight inches. So I've got four groupings of three courses each. Therefore, that's 12. Four times three is 12. So I have 12 times six. It's going to be equal to 72. So uh, as I did when I was first writing this, I was like, okay, so the answer is A, 72. And then I realized, oh, I, I tricked myself. It's a double wythe wall. So I have to double it because I have the same number of bricks on the back side of the wall as well. So the actual answer here is B, 144. Um, so this is one of those things, you start seeing uh, a few simple dimensions and suddenly it all starts piling together. Like one of the things you probably should have noticed if you didn't realize already is the stack of three bricks, eight inches, that's the same as a CMU. So same as the height of a CMU. So I can say if I have a backup wall of CMU with an air gap and then a veneer of brick, uh, I can say that every three bricks is one CMU, every 
uh, three CMUs is going to be nine bricks, right? It's a, you can very easily sort of run these things back and forth. And that's really important because you also want to be able to uh, make sure that, you know, if I have a, three bricks in a row um, and then I have a CMU back here uh, and I've got an air gap, I want to be able to put the, um, the, the ties, the ladder ties or some other kind of ties across. I want to know that those are always going to match up with each other so you're not having a sloped tie or something. Um, so the fact that these things are actually modular is really useful and helpful. Uh, and you start, once you start getting into just a few of those dimensions, they suddenly all start to kind of tie together and you start seeing how everything kind of fits together. And it's actually a very useful way of thinking about these things. Um, another little tricky thing that I threw in here was a square of bricks. Um, square is actually not used for bricks. That's used for roofing. So you'll often hear people refer to a square of roofing, and what they're talking about there is a 10 by 10, 10 foot by 10 foot area of roofing. So if you have a, a, a shingle um, that uh, would be exposed, would be say one square foot exposed, then um, uh, you would there would be a hundred square, like whatever it would take to get a hundred square feet of exposed finished uh, uh, asphalt brick. I mean asphalt uh, shingles. Um, or slate shingles or whatever. This is a way of talking about kind of um, ordering um, uh, roofing materials because they are so different in terms of how much they overlap and all that. What you really care about is what is the finish amount that I'm going to get. So square you'll see show up, but not about brick. It'd be about roofing. Um, a couple of other things to mention here uh, that when you're tying these things together, uh, when you start thinking about how, how all this stuff kind of fits together, you'll notice that uh, the bricks are much more, they, they fit into the module, but they're also much more uh, malleable. Uh, the, the bed, the thickness of the bed can be adjusted. Uh, you can have a thicker uh, mortar bed, you can have a thinner mortar bed. So you have a lot of ability at sort of uh, adjusting something to get it right. But the thing you'll definitely find is that this, this dimension, that eight inch dimension, um, will show up all over the place because uh, while getting the heights to sort of adjust easily, uh, you really don't want to get into situations where just sort of um, by accident of not really thinking it through, I have like a sliver of brick uh, next to a full brick. Um, like that starts looking really ugly. Uh, and so using the module in that direction becomes uh, really important. And then one last thing to mention, um, uh, when I did the 48 inches wide on the base of this wall and said, well, we just divide that by the uh, 8 inches to get 6, and that's, that's our number, we all know that most of the time this is going to be a running bond. So a running bond is going to be something where I've got a brick lined up, um, and then the next, the next one up or down would be a half a brick, and then this is on the half lap, right, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But with the 48 inches, uh, this half brick is going to be matched by one at the other end, and so it's still going to be the same number. It's still going to be six bricks across. I'm just cutting one of them in half and using the two halves on the ends. Well, you have a question here from uh, Rajane. She's asking, how do, you, uh, how do we run a course for a double wife? How are the ties? Uh, that's a really good question. It actually is kind of complicated um, uh, because it depends on what the wall is. Um, often if you're just doing like a patio wall or something where there's not 
uh, there's not a lot of loading on it and it's not acting as a retaining wall, you, know, you kind of don't really worry about it too much and maybe you have a ties every once in a while just to sort of tie it together or every once in a while you do one brick because remember this is, they're four inches wide nominally and that two of them together is equal to an eight inch uh, length of a brick that you do a header going the opposite direction and it ties the two whites together. Um, that's how the old school folks did it. That's why uh, you would see those patterns like a, a common bond or a, a Flemish bond or something often has that the end of the brick shown. It's because they were tying more than one white together uh, as a way to uh, make the different whites uh, work bondedly together in a, in a very strong um, structural wall. Um, in, in something like an outdoor wall, you might do that a few times just to kind of tie everything together. Uh, that's probably better in an outdoor wall and like a patio wall than using a metal tie because those walls are going to get very wet. Uh, they're going to have uh, water coming from both sides and so they're going to get saturated a lot. And you're just asking for trouble of uh, um, corrosion and stuff on the, on the metal um, ties uh, in, in the wall from that standpoint. Kind of interestingly, just on that point, brick is... People think of brick as being kind of waterproof, but it's not at all. It actually is very, very, very porous. Uh, and so when you get a heavy rain, that rain will just soak right into the brick and go right all the way through it and then eventually breathe back out and evaporate back out to the outside. Um, this is the whole reason why you have cavity bricks, cavity walls most of the time, or these days we have a veneer, one single width of, of brick on the outside, and then an inch or two of air gap, and then a CMU backup or other brick or wood or you know, wood studs or metal studs or whatever the backup structural wall is. And the, that width of, uh, that veneer, that front width of brick is really just act, act, acting as kind of like a rain screen. It's just uh, allowing to sort of shed the water mostly. It absorbs quite a bit of the water. It evaporates uh, back away. Any of the water that does get through that brick falls down the back side of the, that front veneer of the brick, and then you have weep holes to allow it to get out. So that absorption of the brick is really pretty amazing and, and, and massive. So you don't wanna do much unless it's a very well protected wall uh, with metal, uh, unless it really is important structurally. Um, so tying them together in uh, this situation, I'd probably use the headers um, going from one white to the other. Uh, if it was more of a retaining wall where there's actually high soil on one side and not on the other, then I'm probably actually going to have rebar and I'm going to have holes in the brick and I have rebar going through it in order to give it more of a uh, capacity as a full structural wall. Um, probably if I was really being smart about it, if I was using it as a retaining wall, I would actually do a concrete retaining wall and then just do a, a facing of brick uh, on the outside because the concrete's so much easier to use with the rebar. Um, hope that answered the question. Yep, looks good. Looks like everybody got that one right too, so. Cool, all right. This one is uh, dead simple, but easy to make uh, uh, mistakes on. And um, I, this is actually pretty much a direct run from the vignette. Uh, so just this is a way of kind of touching on the vignette for the building design and construction systems, which is a, is a couple different vignettes, but one of them has uh, a stair uh, design in it. So, okay, uh, on this one, our uh, situation here is we have to figure out the number of risers. Uh, the stairwell goes from the uh, zero, 00 elevation up to the 8 foot 10 elevation where there's a door, and then it goes continues up to the 13 6 elevation 
uh, where there's another door. So our first consideration is going to be from 0, 0 up to 8 foot 10. Uh, so we start thinking about, all right, we have a, a full run of uh, 8 foot 10. Uh, that's going to be the equivalent of, let's see, uh, 8 times uh, 12 would be 96 plus uh, 10. So that's a vertical run of 106 inches. Uh, so our total vertical uh, uh, rise from the ground floor up to this level is 106 inches. So the first thing we're going to do is we're going to say, what's oh, 106 divided by 7? And why 7? Because in a public stair, and this is a library, so it's a public building, in a public stair, for accessibility reasons, the highest riser we are allowed is a 7-inch riser. Uh, in, if we're in a single-family house or in a mechanical space or some uh, various other specific situations, I can actually have a higher riser. Um, it depends on the municipality for single-family houses. Uh, where I am, I can do it up to, I think, an 8-inch riser. Some places actually can go up even a little higher. But in any public stair, 7 inches is the maximum riser. So our first hope is that if we divide 106 by 7, we'll get a nice even number. As it turns out, um, we do that, and I believe we end up with 15.14. So that means we have 15.14 risers. Um, well, obviously, there's a little problem there. You can't have 0.14 riser. Uh, because if you do, it's like a little sliver of a riser. It's going to be a trip hazard. People would fall all over the place, which clearly is a problem. So uh, what that means is we're going to actually round up. You're always going to round up to 16 risers in this case. And why are you rounding up? Because if we round down, that means that little bit extra um, uh, is actually going to become, it's going to make it so that each of those risers were, you know, 7 and a 16th or 7 and an 8th. We just said seven is the maximum riser height you can have in a public stair. So you have to round up. Um, that's a mistake that people make all the time because it sure seems like you should be able to go to 15 when you're so close to it on this scenario. So in this, this case, if we actually went back in and we divided 106 uh, by 16, uh, I forget the exact, but I believe it comes out to six and five-eighths inches. So that means each riser uh, is, we have 16 risers at 6 and 5 eighths each. Yeah, 6.625, uh, 6 and 5 eighths. Um, so uh, that gives you a kind of a, a clearer sense. We have 16 risers for that first part. They're each 6, uh, six and 5 eighths inches. Now we have to think about this second run of stairs. So we have a second run. We have 13, 6. Uh, that's going to be equivalent to, let's see, what is it, 156 uh, plus 6, which is going to be 162 inches uh, total from the 0 up to the landing. But we don't care about that whole thing. We only care from the 810 up to that. So we take the 162 and we subtract, uh, what was the number, 106. Uh, and that's going to be equal to 56 vertical inches from landing 1 up to landing 2. We divide 56 by seven on the hopes that it's gonna work out nice and ev evenly, and we get eight, and sure enough it does. So in this situation, we're gonna have eight risers at seven inches each. So in total, we have 16 plus eight, we got 24 risers. So A is the correct answer. Uh, intriguingly, some people get sort of screwed up by the fact that there are different riser heights on the two runs of stairs. Um, that's just the nature of the fact that there, 
the heights are set by some other reason. Like there's a, there's, there's a reason why we're coming to this height and there's a reason why we're coming to that height. Uh, there's, in this case, there's no way we could have them all be matching risers. But it is important that the risers are all the same from here all the way up to there, and then a different same, but all the same from there all the way up to there. Uh, you can't have a riser height change in mid-flight. Um, you shouldn't, even if you have a, a mid-landing, there's no reason why uh, one, set, one flight up to the landing should be different than the other flight. Um, the reason that this one it does is because there's a door at that landing. That landing is a set location. It's not just halfway between uh, the, the two floors you're trying to get to. So the answer is 24, 16 plus 8, but uh, kind of realizing that there's this very simple thing. You start by dividing it by, by 7 just uh, to see you get the ballpark. Then you round up uh, if you have to, um, which most of the time you will have to. It's pretty rare that you end up with a nice even number. Uh, and then you go back and divide it by uh, whatever that number is again, and now you actually have both the number of risers and the riser height, very simply. Uh, I've made it look kind of complicated here. Uh, you start to be able to do this in your sleep if you haven't already uh, been able to do it. Okay, I think uh, everybody got this right here. Uh, Rich asked a question. Yep. Uh, technically, riser height from zero, uh, zero foot zero, to the first landing can be different than from first landing up to eight foot ten, right? Um, so that's actually a little bit of a complicated question, even though it seems simple. Um, technically, that could be true, but pretty much any code official that if you if there wasn't a reason why that mid landing on that first run from zero up to the eight ten that the one ha part part way up, um, if there wasn't a reason why it was placed where it was, uh, like there's a a door or an access panel or there's some some reason that would place that then uh, most code officials would say, no, you gotta make them all the same. Because you're always trying to make them match as much as you possibly can. Now, if you're working in an older building, there's a lot more leeway because you know, sometimes you're working with existing structure and you place a landing on something that already exists and then you're kind of doing your best in that scenario. Um, and so the code officials would be fairly flexible about that. But if you were building an all brand new stair, in that scenario, there would be no reason to not make those the same riser height. And the code official would be, be like, what are you doing? Why are you doing that? You know, like you're just creating a problem for yourself. Um, but uh, the fact that there can be different, it's, it's hard to answer because it would depend on all the other little pieces. In this scenario, I would say it should match. Okay, um, and then Dustin is asking, uh, what about the landing without the elevation? The riser height down zero foot zero could be different and a flight up to A10, I think that's the same. Yeah, it's essentially the same, the same, question. same um, question. And we could figure out what, uh, what that is. I, I didn't give you enough information to figure out uh, uh, how high that is uh, because I was trying to focus on the other issues. Um, but if you had uh, some, some uh, length of run issues and some other things like that, you could calculate what, what height that was fairly simply. And the last one here, Tim is asked, Timothy is asking, why not divide 162 inches by seven inches to get your 24-hour risers? Why did you do it in those two parts? Because uh, that's, a, that's an important question, actually. I'm glad you asked that. Um, and the reason for that is because if we did that, our, uh, as we got up uh, to the 810 height, the 810 was given to us because uh, there's, a, there's a floor there. 
And as we got up to there, it wouldn't be equal. It wouldn't, the, the, the riser that was near there would not line up exactly with that floor plane. So we can't do it as a full run. Um, it's possible in this case, when you did that, I think what you're saying is just mathematically, uh, if we do it, we'll be reasonably close, but it's actually possible to get the wrong number uh, because you can be, uh, they can be very, very close from one to another. And uh, when you divide overall, you'd get a different, uh, uh, it would be one off. Okay. Um, one other quick thing to say about this, just uh, this is sort of obvious, but I, I, I teach a lot and I've had a lot of students and man, the number of times I've seen this as a silly mistake. I, so it's just worth saying. Um, if you imagine that you have stairs and they're going up, let's say in this little case, I have uh, one, two, three risers. Um, I have three risers, but I have one, um, I have one and two treads. People will make this mistake all the time. Uh, where they'll say, okay, there's, uh, you know, X number of risers uh, and they're at this height and the treads are at this. How long of a run of stairs is this? And people will multiply the number of risers times the tread width, forgetting to subtract one of them. Um, so that's just a little side point uh, to think about. All right. Number six. What is the steel thickness range for light gauge cold rolled metal framing? So... This is uh, when you're using metal studs, metal joists, that kind of thing. Uh, so it's not structural steel, which would be wide flanges and, and channels and things like that. This is those kind of very thin uh, uh, folded forms that make up uh, the metal studs. Um, and first thing to say is rather oddly, uh, I think oddly, the way that you refer to the thickness is through the idea of gauge. And the larger the number, actually the thinner the metal is. The, the smaller the number, the thicker the metal is. And so I find that sounds kind of backwards, so it always bothers me when I, when I look at it. But as long as you kind of remember that, you'll be fine. Um, and the answer here uh, is that the range is actually A, 30 gauge to 8 gauge. So what this is talking about is 30 gauge is really thin metal. That's, um, that's uh, I, I always joke around about it on sites that that's like folding uh, tin foil uh, and then hoping that it'll work as a stud. Um, there are certain things that that's gonna be good enough for and you might as well go with something that's thin and light if it's not necessary for it to be thicker and heavier. Um, if you get down to an eight gauge, like I actually have never even used an eight gauge. Um, uh, I think the strong, the, the thickest I've ever used on any of my projects is probably a 12 gauge, I think, maybe a 10 gauge. Um, uh, that's actually pretty thick. It's not as thick as a structural steel member, but it's actually getting pretty, pretty solid. Um, and so the range here is, there's gonna be a huge number of times when you're doing an interior layout change, and there's a simple partition, and it's not really, it's just sort of between the floor and the ceiling, and doesn't really carry anything other than the drywall. Uh, you know, that might be a 24 gauge or something along those lines, you know, like pretty light scale, um, cheaper, easier to carry around, doesn't take as much uh, gas on the truck to carry it from one place to another. You know, it's very, very lightweight and very easy and does the job just fine. 
Um, kind of intriguingly, it actually uses the drywall as part of its structure, which is a little weird, um, but that's, uh, that's how it gains its, its uh, um, stiffness. Um, but if I'm doing something where it's actually a load-bearing wall or it's a stiffener for uh, the overall structural setup, I'm definitely going to want to have something that's going to be thicker than that, um, something that's going to have a little bit more robust of a, of a um, capacity. And so that's when I'm going to get down closer to 16, 14, 12. And really when I start getting into like actual, you know, really bearing walls, I'm really talking about 12s and 10s and that kind of range. And I guess 8s, like I say, I've never actually used one. But, but that would be the range of how these things go. Um, it's very, very rough justice. It's not actually accurate, so don't take this as, uh, as gospel or anything. But you can kind of think of the sizes as uh, a 30 gauge is sort of um, roughly 1 of an inch, um, and an 8 gauge would be roughly 1 of an inch, although it's actually thinner than that. But it just kind of gives you kind of a, a, a rough idea of the kind of the range that we're talking about. Uh, and obviously, when you look at that, that's a lot different, right? Those are, you know, that's a, that's a, a lot of steel, a lot of weight, uh, a lot of uh, cost difference. Um, and also, you know, uh, clearly, if I started putting, uh, a, you know, any reasonable heavy load on a, a 30 or 24 gauge uh, steel, it's going to buckle. Um, if I start doing it on one of these thicker ones, like a, a 12 or a 10, the material itself is thick enough that it's going to it's going to be get much much harder for it to buckle. And then the other thing that makes it not buckle um, is that it's folded into a shape, right? Um, that the strength actually comes from the folds, right? So it's going to look something like that. Let's see there. How's that for? Yeah, that's about right. Um, and uh, the sheer fact that this is uh, cold rolled uh, means that it's been recycled usually, not always, but I think something like 92% or something like that of these things are recycled old car parts. Be interesting to see what happens as their cars get more and more plastic, um, <laughs> what, where we're going to get our steel studs from. But uh, they're generally old recycled pieces that get uh, heated up, uh, melted down, uh, laid flat into giant sheets, cut um, uh, with stampers, and then folded. And the fact of the folding actually gives it strength. And that's why it has these double folds. And then they stamp out holes so that there's the ability to have pipes go through um, without having to drill anything. Uh, the studs are like that. The um, bottoms, the runners, are actually going to look more without the second fold. It's just going to be the one fold. Um, uh, and that's so that these uh, can fit in between uh, and then you can screw them together um, uh, into the runner. So they lay the runners down and then you fit these things in and then you add the drywall and it all starts very flimsy and by the time you have it all together it's actually pretty darn, pretty darn solid. So it's kind of an amazing, um, uh, very simple, very engineered down process. Uh, the fact that it's cold rolled really refers to sort of the specifics of uh, the way that it's made, but also has structural implication. Um, a hot rolled uh, would be more of a structural steel situation, and that structural steel um, is going to be thicker materials, and the only real way that you can easily do it on mass scale is by, by doing it hot rolled, and you're getting these uh, much more complicated uh, shapes, the, uh, and that's going to be beneficial to the ductility of that steel. This is going to be uh, less ductile. The reason it gets its ductility is just because it's thin. 
but you're trying to make it as stiff as possible out of a very thin um, amount of material. So you're getting, you're using the structural capacity of the cold versus the hot and the, the folds versus the shapes. Um, you're finding the ways that those different structural capacities are actually helpful to the specific task at hand. Hope that made sense. All right, so quick question here. We do have a couple of questions here. Um, so Michael is asking, is this differentiating uh, LGMF from framing studs, division five versus division nine studs? Yeah, the whole, all of those together would be, would be in the 30 to the eight range. Um, it's kind of putting them all in one thing. Okay, and then Jordan is asking, you know, can you leave it uh, to the contractor and the general requirements of a CD set, you know, for interior partition walls, for example? Um, it depends on the kind of thing you're doing. If you're talking about interior partitions, um, like most buildings, if you're working in a bigger building, a bigger office building, there's probably like a set way that they do it. Uh, so they'll just go with that set way. And that, that's, you don't really need a structural engineer or anything like that to figure that out. Um, but I was actually just today um, at uh, doing a walkthrough with a um, friend of mine who has a, a, new, uh, a new kitchen structure and it's in a bigger building and they were talking about how the um, landlord developer went in and put in uh, a demising wall using 16s, uh, 16 gauge uh, studs. And that kind of makes sense in the world of demising walls and that was great. Uh, until they realized that they were actually doing a mezzanine and they were going to be using that wall as a structural wall, at which point they had to be 12s. And there was a whole discussion that the landlord hadn't looked at the drawings and the architects had put 12, 12s in the drawings because they knew the mezzanine was coming, but the landlord was just kind of doing the thing they always do and put in the 16s and it didn't meet the structural capacity that they needed to be able to hold the floor up uh, because it wasn't just a partition anymore, even though it was a fire rated partition, it wasn't just a fire rated partition, it was also a structural wall. So that's the, the trouble with letting just kind of the, the folks do what they always do is that if you don't think it through at least, you may find that there are spots where that's just not true and you really do need to be very careful about uh, uh, which, which elements need to be in this, these thicker, more robust ranges. All right, number seven. Um, so I often will talk about, because I, I think this shows up on the exams a lot, um, kind of interesting words. Um, some of you may have heard me say the Virendil Trust, for example. Like it's sort of a thing that doesn't show up a lot, but it's an interesting word, and so it shows up on the exam a lot. Well, here's one, posilons and superplasticizers. These are just great words, and they're easy to ask questions about. I don't know what kind of questions they would ask, but I just thought we'd sort of use it as a way to kind of get into some of these issues. So, question seven. Posilons are added to concrete mix for this actually has two potential answers, but the first one that I would answer is that they uh, are added for strength. Um, what they're really added for, though, when you kind of look behind the scenes, is actually uh, to save money. Because uh, what posilons are, are generally, there's quite a wide range of posilons. They actually, the, the term actually comes from uh, the Roman days. It uh, has something to do with lime or something. Um, back in the Roman days, and uh, so it's a term that has been around for literally thousands of years um, in different quite subtle variations. Um, but these days when we talk about posilons, we're usually talking about things that are similar to fly ash or something like that, and those are industrial um, uh, products that, that are kind of uh, offshoots from when they're making something else. And there's a bunch of examples of it, uh, of these things that, that are uh, nobody wants, 
And so if we can use those and they will do a similar thing to what the uh, Portland cement does in the concrete where it, it uh, hydrates and mixes uh, in, in a sort of chemical reaction in order to create a strong bond that then holds the aggregate in at first a paste and then eventually a very uh, solid uh, structural wall. Um, if we can do that, the Portland cement is very expensive. So if we can take some of the Portland cement out and put in some of this material that we can essentially get for free, uh, it can reduce the cost of the wall, it can be uh, helpful, but it also is uh, keeping the strength or uh, giving a different kind of version of the strength uh, into that concrete wall. So strength, but really the background of it is that you're trying to save money by using these uh, industrial cast-offs. Uh, and then superplasticizers are a very different animal. Sometimes it'll be just referred to as plasticizers, sometimes superplasticizers. There's a few other terms for, for these things. Um, this is uh, the reason that you would add that to a mix is for workability. Um, and what we're talking about there, um, workability, oh, there we go. Um, there's an I in there as well. Uh, what we're talking about there is like, let's say you're the guy on the job site and a uh, uh, concrete truck shows up and you have to add a little bit of water at the, at the end and it's uh, to get the mix just right. And it's four o'clock on a Friday and you really wanna get home and there's a lot of complicated form work and a lot of rebar in there. Like what you really wanna do is you wanna make that concrete really wet. You wanna add a bunch of water to it. So you're gonna put a bunch of water into the mix. So you've got uh, Portland cement, you got the aggregate, you got a couple of other things and you got the water. Uh, and the, um, the water and the Portland cement are gonna have a chemical moment with each other and they're gonna produce heat and they're gonna produce this kind of crazy reaction that makes it, that turns it into a solid, uh, the, the thing that we think of as concrete, that solidness. And by having it be sort of pasty, the pastiness of it, the sort of flowing pastiness of it allows for the, the aggregate, the big chunks of rocks, uh, to be suspended in that paste, which is what you want. Um, but the more of a hard paste it is, uh, the harder it's gonna be to fit in around all of the rebar and in complicated form work. So imagine I have a, a wall and I've got a bunch of uh, rebar down at the, you know, somewhere in that wall and I'm trying to get, I'm trying to place this concrete in and I'm trying to get it around all that stuff. Um, the more workable it is, the more wet it is, the more water I put in, it's gonna make that way, way easier to kind of fill in and it'll just you know, be like uh, uh, you know, kind of water kind of filling in around all those things, which is gonna be awesome if you're the guy trying to get there and get out and get home to your family. Uh, but uh, the wetter it is, the, the more uh, soupy it is, the less that the uh, aggregate will remain suspended in that mix. And so you'll start getting all the aggregate falling by gravity down to the bottom and all the cement rising to the top. And that's gonna be a terrible wall. So you don't want a really, really wet mix of concrete for that reason. But the other reason you don't want that is that there's a, actually a very limited amount of the water is needed for this chemical moment with the Portland cement. Uh, the, uh, that chemical moment actually only really needs uh, less, uh, it needs less water to go through the, that chemical process than what you need to make it workable. So there's already, even in the stiffest concrete paste that you're using, there's already too much water. 
So the more water I put in there, I'm actually making the concrete weaker and weaker because I have all this excess uh, moisture in there that then has to get out and it leaves uh, void spaces and it causes all kinds of problems. So if I am looking for strength, I want to go with the uh, least amount of water I can get in, I can manage to use because um, I want to I want to make it uh, as close to the right amount of water per uh, uh, amount of uh, cement so they have just enough that really makes all the cement work and then as little extra as possible but if I do that it's like not workable at all so uh, it's maybe possible to do something with a very very stiff uh, paste if I'm doing it for a uh, precast uh, structure where I, where I have a lot more control over how the formwork works but if I'm out on a job site I, I have to have more more workability than that so okay, how do you do that without reducing the quality of uh, the concrete? Well, one of the ways you can do it is you use these super plasticizers. And what they do is they just kind of, it's almost like giving um, uh, uh, like a little bit of, uh, it makes everything feel like it's got a little bit of wax on it. It's not, it doesn't have anything to do with wax, but um, you start to get this situation where all this stuff is moving back and forth much more flowy and easily. Uh, and it'll do that for a little while as if you put more water in but then after about 30 minutes, it'll speed up and cure very, very quickly. And then uh, it'll go on to the sort of normal curing process. So it's a way of keeping the strength of the concrete, the compressive strength of the concrete, but getting it to be much, much more workable. Also, like I said, I just love those words, pozzolans and super plasticizers. So it's just an easy one to talk about. All right, here's a uh, simple one. We're on to number eight. Uh, how many board feet is there, are there, I guess, um, in a two by six uh, joist measuring 12 feet long? So if you haven't heard the term board feet, you should definitely sort of get a handle on it. It's a very simple idea, um, but it, uh, for some reason, they always seem to ask questions about uh, board feet. The reason that you would actually never ask a question like this in real life, um, because uh, you wouldn't talk about a two by six that's 12 feet long in board feet. You would use it if you were buying a train load of, of wood for a housing development or something like that. Uh, you would say, well, how many board feet is in each car? You know, it's a way of buying large quantities of wood, of uh, usually dimensional lumber, but it can be other things as well. Um, so uh, one board foot is one inch deep by 12 by 12. So that's a board foot. And we're using nominal dimensions, not actual dimensions, nominal dimensions. So a two by six that's 12 feet long, there's a couple ways, I just do it graphically from in my head, um, and I'll just draw it out for you. So I just start to, as I imagine, cutting it in half in this case, because I happen to know that uh, a two by six sitting next to a two by six is gonna be 12, right? Um, So I have one, and then I have another one right next to it. And what that has given me is I have a six foot dimension, I have a 12 uh, inch dimension, and I have a two inch dimension. Uh, and so if I think of that as two layers of board feet, I've got this, I have the 12 inch dimension, and I have two layers of it by six. Uh, so I have essentially 12 board feet. So the answer is gonna be B, 12 board feet. Um, this is a very simple version. You can imagine uh, you could get a question that's like, okay, you've got 
300 two by fours and 150 two by six, you know, something sort of dopey like that. And you just have to kind of find, the reason I do this graphically is that when you do that, you just kind of find a sort of, all right, two by fours, I line three of them up next to each other, that's 12 inches. Um, so then I can stack uh, 10 tall and I can very, very quickly come up with uh, how many board feet that is uh, and just, just doing it in your head kind of uh, graphically. But for some reason, this shows up all the time. So there you go, board feet. Now you feel comfortable going out and buying train loads of wood. Looks like everybody got that one. Cool. Uh, number nine, which of the following cuts from the same log would produce the uh, flooring with the best wearing characteristics? Quarter sawn, plain sawn, rotary sawn, half round sawn. Um, I've uh, done a little bit of this uh, some, in some other locations, so you may, uh, there's a longer discussion of, it, discussion of it in some other spots, but I think this is kind of a nice one because it touches on a bunch of issues. So let's say this is our log. Um, and there's a log. Um, the answer to this is going to be cortisone. So I'm going to talk about cortisone for a second. Cortisone, if you imagine, you're cutting that log uh, into those quarters. And then once I cut those into the quarters, I'm going to cut my boards out in that sort of awkward way like that. And you can tell immediately that I start getting with all these little weird triangular little leftover bits of space. So this is not an efficient way to cut a log. Uh, I'm gonna end up with lots of extra bits. Now these days, all that extra bits goes into something. It goes into OSB or particle board or something. So it's not like it gets totally lost, but it's not highest and best use. So it better be a good reason to do the quarter song because you're losing a lot of uh, what would otherwise be uh, revenue producing. So the reason for that is that if you imagine uh, any one of those pieces, so let's say we're talking about like this one right there, um, the uh, rings of the tree are essentially going right like that. So the rings are going roughly straight across. So if we then think about it as a board of wood, with those little um, uh, things, I'm gonna see the grain on the, that front face essentially vertical. So the rings are hard rings that are the darker ones and then lighter rings which are the softer ones. By having that board with those, that fairly even spacing and uh, that vertical line, that means all the hard and the soft are balanced and so the hard is going to be protective of the soft and it's going to wear much, much better than any of the other kinds of uh, wood flooring that you might get. So let's talk about plane sawing for a second. So if I have that same situation with the plane sawing, there's my log. Um, in plane sawing, I'm not going to go to this thing of where I'm going to cut it into quarters or anything like that. Uh, I'm just going to start you know, finding these, these lines across. I'm going to cut it into those. It's going to be the most efficient way to get as many boards uh, as I can out of it, but a bunch of those boards are going to end up in situations where uh, I'm going to have something like uh, the grain doing something like that, right? Where I don't have it going straight across effectively. I have it in some awkward uh, other way. So when I do the, uh, the look at the side, um, at the, the, this main run, you'll start seeing what's referred to as cathedraling, where you'll start getting those kind of awkward amounts, these big flat areas of soft, uh, soft parts within the little kind of uh, bits of the, um, 
of the hard rings. Um, and when you walk on that, it's gonna wear very, very differently than it would if you were walking on uh, a cortisone. Now, some people really like that. There's times when it's appropriate. It's often referred to as character wood. Um, you'll find that people will do it on purpose and for kind of a cabin look or something like that. So it's not necessarily bad, it's just different. And since the question was asking about wearing um, characteristics, you want something that's gonna wear evenly and consistently. So. Corson, plain son, rotary son, and uh, half round son, those are really for other kinds of uh, like uh, plies of things, plywoods and veneers and a bunch of other stuff like that. All right, number, uh, number 10. Increasing the carbon content in steel has what effect? Does it make the steel more flexible, make the steel less ductile, uh, make steel more corrosion resistant, make the steel easier to weld? This is one of the examples um, where there's actually a couple of uh, right answers, but one is probably a better right answer than another. Um, uh, a is definitely not true. Adding carbon um, uh, into steel does not make it more flexible. Uh, and D is um, uh, definitely not true, uh, making it easier to weld. Those, those are definitely not true. The two that are sort of pretty reasonable answers are B and C, um, but the best answer really is C. Um, because that's the reason that you have, the, that's one of the main reasons why you have these, um, these differences. So just a quick kind of back, backdrop onto all of this. Um, when this kind of construction steel really first started happening, it wasn't steel, it was actually um, cast iron. Uh, and so cast iron um, was this kind of miracle material that people you know, were, at first were using for, to, for tools and for like swords and uh, I'm not sure if they use cast for swords. I don't think it would be a good sword, but they use it for, for very specific kinds of tools. And it, it was very interesting, but it was hard to make. And so you'd make relatively small amounts. Then they started figuring out how to make much bigger amounts and they started using it for structural uh, purposes. Uh, a number of disasters later, they realized, wait, we've got a problem here. And um, that problem was that the material is very, very strong, but it's also very brittle. And that material has, um, uh, kind of in the range of, uh, I think maybe 2% to 5% or something. 5% sounds like a lot, but I think I've seen that written, of carbon in, in there. So all that carbon makes it, uh, helps make it strong, but also makes it very, very brittle. Um, so by reducing that carbon, uh, we're able to make it much more ductile, which is really helpful. It makes it uh, easier to weld. It does all kinds of these really strong benefits. Um, and so typical mild steel is probably gonna be something like 0.3%, uh, so it's way less. Um, as you get into uh, like higher content uh, carbon steels, you might get up to like 0.5%, uh, maybe even a little bit higher than that, probably less than, less than 1%, definitely less than 2%. Um, and those ones have certain benefits, but as you get up to those, those larger numbers, you're gonna start losing uh, some of the ductility. Uh, you're gonna have certain um, disadvantages of it. Uh, the ductility is really important because uh, the ductility means that that flexibleness, that the steel, when it gets loaded, it can flex, but then when the load is taken off, it goes back to its original shape. It's incredibly helpful for buildings. Uh, and one of the big advantages of it is that if it's really, things are really going terrible, it will bend, bend, bend before it finally gives way. So if you're a firefighter running through a building or something like that and you feel the floor is actually bending below you, you know it's time to get the heck out of that, uh, out of that building. Um, so it, it's, it's an incredibly useful um, aspect to how steel works. 
but by adding a little bit more of the carbon, we're making it a little stiffer and that way it's not as, not as ductile. But also, the reason that you would really want that is it does these other things. For example, it's much less uh, um, uh, open to, to certain kinds of corrosion. And so depending on where you're using it, it has these certain advantages. All right, I'm gonna jump on because we're getting a little late here. Number 11. This is actually a very simple one. Um, which of the following is the uh, most characteristic of an end-bearing foundation element? So all of these, the timber piling, the belled caissons, steel micropiles, tapered precast concrete piles, those are all uh, large-scale uh, uh, foundation systems. Actually, micropiles are not necessarily large-scale. Uh, they can be large-scale. Uh, but those are for systems where you're digging, you're going down pretty, pretty deep into the, uh, uh, into the ground. But um, they also act very differently. And the key thing on the question is end bearing. Uh, timber piling, generally I'm gonna find, there's gonna be a bunch of these that I'm gonna put together uh, and they're gonna go very, very deep into the ground. So there's my ground plane. I'm gonna group them together with like a little concrete pad on the top so they act like one. Um, and I'm gonna not really worry, like I'm, when they go down into the bottom, I'm not really trying to get uh, those timber pilings to actually stand on anything, um, you know, these are these are essentially telephone poles. Like they're they're long straight trees that have been trimmed down, uh, and I push them down into the ground. And just in the same way that if you were like if you're out walking around uh, in the you know like along a beach or something or near some mud, uh, and you have a stick in your hand, you stick the stick into the mud and you try to pull it out. Sometimes it's hard to pull out. That's the friction that's happening between the stick and the mud. Well, the piles are doing exactly the same thing, just the other way. So I'm not counting on these piles as end bearing, although there are some very specific times when that happens. But most of the time when I'm talking about piles, I'm really talking about friction bearing. So it's just the fact that these things are pushing against the soil uh, in various ways, uh, and it's creating this sort of cloud of, of friction around it. And that's how you can actually, there's a technical way to sort of add up that amount of friction and you can decide how much load you can put on, on those piles, that group of piles in order to, to hold up uh, your section of the building there. Um, so the, the piles are happening through a friction fit, not through um, uh, end bearing. The micro piles are uh, similar. They're kind of a coiled system. Uh, the tapered uh, uh, piles uh, are, uh, can go either way, actually, but the one that really speaks to end bearing is the belled caisson. So in the belled caisson, we've got a situation where we've got our uh, ground plane and we dig down, and as we dig down, we actually literally bell it out down at the bottom. Um, and so we've, uh, that would end up, we'd dig it out and we'd end up filling it with uh, concrete and rebar. Uh, and the way they do that is they have this auger system that comes down and it has a blade that can fall down and out. And as that auger spins around, it, uh, they, they don't let it fall until it gets to the, the level they want. Uh, and then you bell it out and make it much bigger down at the bottom. And the whole idea here is that I've got uh, some uh, bedrock down here and I have really high uh, uh, capacity PSF of the bedrock. Let's say it's, I don't know, make up a number here, 12,000 PSF. Uh, down there. Uh, this maybe is, let's say, 80 feet down. Um, and all of this soil, which is much uh, less capacity than that, than that bedrock, 
I'm essentially just going to ignore all of this. This is like building uh, a column on top of the bedrock that goes up through 80 feet of air. Um, now it's kind of handy because it, it's braced because of this soil, but I'm not counting on any of that soil for the structural load. I'm literally just building a column all the way down to this very um, uh, uh, suitable soil of the, of the bedrock. Uh, and because that's what I'm doing and because I want to get as much, I mean, I'm going way down in order to do this, uh, I'm you know, going this 80 feet or 100 feet or 110 feet. Um, I've, I've seen up to 200 feet. I know sometimes these are shorter, like 30 or 25 feet or something. But generally, when you're talking about caissons, you're talking about 50, 80, 100, 110 something feet. So you're going a really long way. Well, I don't want to do that and then have an end-bearing thing that's just a few square feet. I want it to get as much of that uh, capacity as possible so I can carry as much load for the building as possible. Um, so the bell, which is this little shape here, uh, is the belled caisson, and that's absolutely uh, would be the answer. So B would be the answer on this one. Okay, let's move on. One last one here. 12. Uh, standing at the job site, watching the concrete coming out of the truck, I'm worried about the concrete being too runny or wet. Which test should I consider? So we have the vein shear test, the cylinder test, the slump test, and the ACT test. Well, first off, you should recognize the ACT test is uh, the test that uh, high schoolers do, I believe. Um, so that's not the right one. Uh, so it's definitely not D. So then we have these other three. A vein shear test is actually a soils test, and that's one when I've got... Uh, this little device that kind of fits in the ground. This is not a great drawing of it, but I think you get the idea and it has a little handle on it. Um, and you stick it down into the ground and then you turn it. Uh, you try to make it uh, go around. And what that's going to do is going to tell you what kind of soil it is. Like if it's a, a, a running soil, like if you can twist it easily, that means you're not going to get any uh, horizontal capacity, any, anything um, that's going to stop your building from shifting horizontally if there's a, an earthquake or there's some other, uh, um, or hydrostatic issues that are going to push things one way or the other. So it's, it's going to tell you what kind of soil that is. And it's a very useful thing to know in very specific situations, especially ones that are kind of have to do with retaining. Um, but that's about soils. It's not about concrete at all. Uh, so that definitely is not it. So it's not A and it's not D. Um, so we can definitely rule those guys out. So then the question is, is it B or C, cylinder test or slump test? So cylinder test, uh, fairly straightforward. I have uh, somebody is pouring concrete, and um, as they're pouring concrete out of the truck, uh, you're going to, off to the side, you're going to have a little formwork that's a cylinder shape, uh, and they're going to pour a whole series of these uh, little cylinders that are usually 12 inches tall. Um, I think they're 6 inches in diameter, but I actually don't remember exactly. Uh, and you're going to make these uh, cylinders, and you can make a bunch of them out of every truckload of concrete that comes. And then you're going to mark on it what the truck was, what delivery number it was, which batch of concrete it was, and then where that batch was being placed into the building. Uh, and you're going to make these little formwork pieces. Uh, you're going to put them into a, a storage area, uh, and then you're going to let them cure, uh, and then you're just going to let them sit there. And the reason that you're doing that is that you can then uh, at various points, say at the seven-day mark, maybe the 14-day mark, but definitely at the 28-day mark. 28 days is sort of the amount of time it's considered that uh, concrete has fully cured. 
it actually technically doesn't cure fully until forever. It's a, it'll just keep curing, but it's so close to like the, the way the curve works at 28 days, you're, you're very, very close to that. So uh, it's just a sort of a workable number that makes everybody, uh, makes it easy to kind of, it's four weeks from now, that's when it's cured. Um, and so the idea here is uh, that this concrete is the same concrete that got put in uh, into the building. You have a whole bunch of these. They're all labeled very carefully. And then at some point, uh, you're, there's a worry, there's a reason to think about it. You come into a device that smashes it, a big hydraulic press that presses in and, and checks the compressive capacity of that cylinder of concrete. And then by using the very particularly calibrated system, they could figure out what the capacity of the concrete was. And then you could say, yeah, that, that was what we ordered. We said we wanted uh, 7,000 um, PSI concrete and it came out to 7,000 or it came out to 7,500 or something. So that works just fine, everything's good. Um, you probably don't end up crushing them all. You probably just do ones uh, along the way to kind of check to make sure everything's okay. Or if there was a problem, maybe you were very carefully organizing these things and then you're crushing them uh, right away and you're gonna check the one at seven days, you're gonna check one at 14 days because people are worried that there was a problem and you really wanna to, want, want to check it out. But for a lot of the time, you, you, they would make these, do a few sample tests, because it actually costs money to crush these things. So you're probably not gonna crush them all the time. Um, and if you're doing a smaller project like a house or something, like single family house, you're probably not even gonna do the cylinders. Um, but for any larger project, you absolutely should. It's uh, probably part of the contracts uh, and it allows everybody to sort of check it out. But this is something like if you're figuring out at 28 days that the concrete was bad that they put in, it's kind of too late. Uh, it's already after it's been done and you know the problem is already done, it's already in there. So uh, in the example that we're talking about here, he's looking at the thing, it's coming out of the concrete truck and it looks too runny or wet. Like, what was, if we did, if we claimed that the cylinder test was the thing to do here, that means we wouldn't figure it out until a month later. Well, that's not terribly helpful. That means you got to go back in. This is a month of construction that has kept on going. You have to go back in and rip it out if it's a problem. It's a big, big, big mess. So the actual answer on this is, of course, the slump test. And what that is, is I have this truncated cone, uh, which is like a big cup. Uh, I fill it with the concrete. Uh, I then flip it over and I make that uh, cone go the other direction. I take the, the, the cup off, this truncated cone off, and uh, I see how much that shape slumps down. Literally, it's a slump test. I, I'm measuring the slump. And if I end up with a situation where it slumps down into like a little puddle, well, that's way too much water in that mix, uh, and that's going to be a terrible, terrible uh, concrete mix. Uh, if I take the cone off and it doesn't slump at all, it has a zero slump, uh, it stays exactly in that same form, well, that might be useful for uh, precast, but it's going to be almost impossible to use out on a job site uh, in any complicated form work or trying to get around uh, the rebar and anything like that. So uh, what you're in a... It's different for precast in a, in a factory versus doing something on a job site, but typically what you're gonna end up with is it's gonna slump down, it's gonna kind of go something, uh, and you'll get uh, somewhere in this kind of three inch range, maybe four inch range of slump. If, if for some reason you really don't need the compressive strength and there's reasons why you want it, you might even go as much as like five inch or something um, uh, on, 
if you were on a job site and the slump was only like one inch or something, you might be able to get away with that in a, in a simple scenario. But the vast majority of the time, it's going to be something like a three inch slump. So that would tell you they do the slump test right there and then. If, it's, if you get the puddle, you say to them, uh, well, you don't say to them, but you say to the GC, hey, this isn't, this isn't going to meet the thing. You guys should really not put this in because we're going to test all these cylinders. Uh, and they would know to stop the truck, send it back, get a new truck in that has a, a, a better mix, a better, um, a better slump, uh, and would be more effective. So uh, that's the, the 12 questions. Um, and I, I hope that what you're seeing is, as we're talking about these very specific elements, what we're really talking about is kind of these big ideas of uh, water, uh, uh, workability, uh, the process of how these things go, kind of means and methods, uh, keeping things to be structurally sound. And those things end up being shown, and the questions end up being asked through these very minute pieces but in fact, they're talking about these bigger issues. All right, <clears throat> so um, we've got a couple of good uh, questions here. At this point, we'll open it up for a few questions. Um, and so we'll start with Allison's question. She goes back to the stair vignette. Mm -hmm. And she says, when we do the stair vignette, does the same riser method apply where the risers are different sizes? Yes, um, it, uh, I, I can almost guarantee you that there will be two different risers um, on the stair vignette. Uh, because they want to just check to see if you get it. Um, so uh, th th they will, in fact, do that. And that happens all the time. You, you will find it's actually pretty rare uh, if you have three heights or, or more uh, that everything will work out perfectly. Um, you know, the first floor to the second floor uh, is probably a different riser than the second floor to the third floor. Um, if you have a building that has a lot of very similar repetition floors, you might have all the same from, like, the the third to four and four to five and five to six might all be the same riser height, but that first to second is likely to be different for exactly these, the reasons that we talked about. Okay, another question here from, uh, from Devon is asking, what advice can you give in the understanding of the effects of attaching dissimilar elements to concrete? Oh man, that's a, that's a big long question. It's a really good question, but it's a big long question. Um, specific uh, metals will actually uh, dissolve in concrete, um, and so you have to be very, very particular about it. Um, I, I, I kind of don't want to get too deep into it right now because um, I, I don't want to say the wrong thing, and I should really sort of uh, make sure I've checked up uh, recently. Um, but absolutely, there's, um, there's, this is actually true both from metal to metal and from concrete to metal. Um, that uh, it, there, there are situations where if I use a screw of one type and a washer of another, they will have an a, um, electrolyte uh, reaction with each other and will, one will corrode and it'll actually tear itself and, and dissolve essentially. And so you have to be very careful about uh, metal to metal but the same situation can happen with the concrete and metals. Another thing with concrete that you have to be very careful of, uh, those of you who have done uh, like a platform construction, you may have noticed that at the top of the uh, foundation wall, before you put the sill plate down, they should always, they don't always, but they should always put a sill sealer uh, down first, which is uh, like a thin layer of kind of squishy, but, um, uh, but uh, uh, squishy material that that stops moisture from from penetrating through, and even if you're using um, 
uh, pressure treated uh, wood, the concrete, like I said, there's more water in the concrete in order to make it workable than it actually needs. And so the concrete will give off actually a shocking amount of water over a span of time, especially for the first year, uh, that it'll just keep giving off water. And uh, it will rot out any wood that's right up against it. So you have to find ways to separate these things. So you'll often see uh, like these kind of fibrous elements, neoprene elements, uh, things like that that become separators between something that is being attached to the concrete, either if it's metal or wood. Um, but you should absolutely look up the specifics of which kinds of metals can touch the concrete, because a lot of them can't. Um, this is also one of the reasons why you have coatings on, on a lot of the rebar and things, is that you get the salts that go in with the waters and stuff like that, and you, you need to have coatings on there to protect that, that metal. Allison is asking, what is the ACT test again? Uh, I was joking on that one. Sorry, I should, have, <laughs> I should be careful. That was a high school test uh, um, uh, for like English or physics or something, um, just to throw you off. Michael was asking, do you, know if, and, uh, do you know how many questions you can expect on this part of the exam? Yeah, so, okay, um, one, one question, which is a similar question which I often get is, all right, how many questions do I need to answer correctly? And I always try to dissuade people from even thinking or worrying about it. Um, the, the number of questions, um, I, I forget, I should have looked it up, but it's something like 85 or something like that. It's, it's, it's around 100, a little less than that um, for uh, an exam like this. Um, but that doesn't mean that those all are questions that are going to gr grade for or against you. It's quite possible that uh, they may have realized that, um, uh, like uh, I'll give you an example. A, a few years ago, about 2007 or so, um, I was teaching classes on this stuff, and uh, people, people talked to me all the time about this, as you might imagine, and so they came back and they said, oh my god, I took the exam after we did the class, and like, there were like 30 questions on sustainability. Like, what was up with that? We barely talked about it. And the, what had happened in that scenario was that NCARB had kind of realized that they were behind the curve on people talking about sustainability. And, you know, in 2002, very few people were uh, were, were really deep into thinking about it, but by 2007, 2008, if you weren't thinking about sustainability, you weren't talking about architecture. Like it would become very much a part of, of the discussion. And they realized they needed a lot of sustainability questions, but they didn't have a lot of them already written. So they wrote a whole bunch of them and then put them into all the different exams. And then as they would go through it, they would check out. If they put a question in that 100% of the people got it right, well, that question's too easy. And so they would throw it out, or they'd take it, throw it out for you and then rewrite it into a different situation and put it back in. If 20% of the people got it right, well, that's too hard. They'd throw it out. Um, so there's often test questions in there. In that case, there was a whole lot of test questions going on. In, every, in any scenario, there's always going to be a few test questions, and you just don't know which ones are actually counting for, you know, are actually part of your actual exam, and which ones you're just answering test questions for them to understand. Uh, do people understand the question? Does the wording work? Does, you know, uh, uh, even if it is a reasonable question, did, you know, too, was it just too hard? Um, so uh, I wouldn't worry too much about it. The question run will be uh, somewhere about 75 or 80 that count for you, um, and you, but don't worry about it. Just answer the best you can. So we'll take two more questions here. Um, Dustin's asks, uh, when you get a submittal for a concrete mix design, they include a compressive strength test history for that mix design. Yeah. The plant provides that, but where does the testing history come from? Um, is it from cylinder tests used on previous batches, for example, other projects, or not? 
Um, it actually can come from two different sources. One of them is that uh, they, you know, on on bigger, more important buildings, you can imagine this stuff is watched very, very closely. Like if you're doing uh, a bigger building and uh, the compressive strength of the concrete is vitally important to a multi-floor, uh, uh, you know, structural situation, you're going to be very careful about checking these. Uh, um, you're not going to crush all of these cylinders, but you're going to check a lot of them. Um, and the different mixes, if they find that they do a mix and they, they crush them and they, they uh, always get back a really consistent number, then that's something that, that you know, they would take that information back and they, you'd use that in their, in their uh, documentation. Um, but uh, often they'll, do, they'll have their own systems of, like uh, the cylinder test, you actually don't go back typically, I think you do some places because there's just not enough resources out in certain parts of the country. Um, but in the, in the best case scenario, you wouldn't take the cylinder back to the place you bought the concrete from. You would take it to a third party because what you want is somebody else to look at it for you. Um, so there's somebody who's not interested and they, they may not even know what the concrete um, mix was supposed to, what compressive strength it was supposed to get to. You actually don't want them to know. You want them just to do the test and they say, yes, it came out to 7,200 PSI or 3,000 PSI or whatever it is. Um, uh, so they, if they're doing that, they're probably using their own testing as they came up with the mix. Um, they've tested it and tested it and tested it, kind of perfect the mix, and then they'll, they'll settle on one. And so they've been testing it for themselves, but then they would be able to also check um, because they would look at the logs of other people's tests and make sure that their numbers were the same as the other people's numbers. So it'll actually be both. Um, and it, it's partly, I'm sure, dependent on which company and which location. Okay, and then finally here from Tom, he wants to know if, if is board feet the same for, um, for actual or nominal dimensions? Um, you it can actually, uh, you must use nominal dimensions um, because like when I was doing this, this really simple one, uh, it's obviously the same uh, because there's only one board and like it, you know, it end up being very similar. Um, but uh, you can imagine that if the difference between something that's an inch and a half tall and something that's two inches tall in terms of uh, how you start adding it up, if I am thinking of this as like a train load, that's a giant amount difference. Um, and so you would be way, way, way off uh, if you were using the actual. So it's definitely uh, the nominal dimensions that are used for board feet. All right, uh, well, we'll end it there. So thank you, Mike. Uh, and thanks to all of you who've tuned in and to Devon, Dustin, Joshua, Judd, Kevin, Michael, and Jerry, who submitted their answers uh, to the questions. Yes, well uh, done, guys. Yeah, if you guys would like to attend our next ARE live broadcast on the schematic design exam, visit blackspectacles.com slash podcast to register or attend. Just like today's episode, you'll have a chance to ask questions and share your answers with Mike for live feedback during the broadcast. And that one's really different because it's about the vignettes and it has a very different flow to it. So it'll be similar, but quite different discussion. And you guys should know that ARE Live is now a podcast. So if you go to uh, blackspectacles.com slash podcast, you can actually register, or I'm sorry, you can subscribe to the podcast for uh, via iTunes or Stitcher. Um, or you can watch uh, any of these uh, video replays uh, on our YouTube channel, which you can get to also uh, from that podcast page. So you can, now you can take Aerie Live with you in your phone uh, or your, uh, any device. Um, so it's, you'll have, you can have Mike in your so, ear. So now you can ruin your vacation anywhere. Yeah, there you right. go. <laughs> um, so, um, and then also, of course, to learn more about our AIA Aerie prep curriculum, go to blackspectacles.com where you can 
um, you know, prepare for the ARE uh, uh, in all seven uh, sections of the exam, including the one we covered tonight. Um, we'll put a, a, a link in the show notes. And for those of you who want to get busy preparing for the ARE, um, if you're already an AIA member, you can visit AIA.org slash ARE prep to get a 15% discount for the entire duration of your AIA ARE prep membership. Finally, please hop over to iTunes right now and rate our podcast to let us know what you think and share any suggestions you may have. I promise we'll read every word that you write and use them to tune our next episodes. So thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.